Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear was recorded during our live event in November of 2023. Thank you for listening. So speaking of the Jordan Peele anthology, do you want to tell anything more about that story that you wrote? Because I've heard some interesting things. So, okay, <laughs> how Maurice got in trouble with another elder in the city. Um, so, um, how many are people here from Indianapolis? Okay. Oh, okay. shit, okay, travel folks, okay. Right. So, uh, so, the boundaries for Indianapolis stopped at Keystone Avenue on the east side, this back in the day, and so there was a community uh, called Norwood uh, that, that was there, or that is there, so there's two communities, actually, there's Norwood and there's Barrington. Okay, and both those towns were founded by the colored troops. So the colored troops were stationed here. The 28th Regiment was stationed here in Indianapolis. They go down, fight in the Civil War. They come back and they found these two towns. Uh, they go to Nor- you, they, you go to Norwood if you have wife and children. You go to Barrington if you don't. And Barrington actually became uh, Indianapolis's unofficial red lights district, and so. Uh, so like when bands would come through and, and be on Indiana Avenue, all the jazz musicians, they would come and they'd hang out in Barrington, right? So that, that's your bit of a history lesson there. Um, but then a friend of mine who uncovered a lot, who did a lot of this research, she told me the story, like, hey, did you know that in, in Norwood, uh, the pastors there would pastor their churches by day, but then at night cast Orisha spells of protection over Norwood? And I'm like, no, I did not know this. <laughs> But I have to write about this now. <laughs> um, so I end up writing the story about, uh, and, and another feature about Norwood is uh, there was an orchard that was planted by the Native Americans who, who live in this area, and, the, and Norwood kept the orchards going, and the orchard would run all the way through the community, uh, which allowed the community to be self-sustaining for 100 years. So for 100 years, Norwood has existed as a free black community uh, that was only dismantled when Ransom Place, which was their link to the city, got dismantled. So we're talking all the way into the 60s that Norwood was basically there. No one basically knew about Norwood, but it existed as a, a free town for about 100 years. And in 100 years, it was also surrounded by heavily occupied clan neighborhoods, um, such as Irvington. Yeah. Love to work there. Um, so that was going on all around it. Right. Uh, very much so like, we can't go to there because we don't come back. That was a lot of Indianapolis and the surrounding area right. of Norwood and Barrington. Right. Yeah, because at the time, you got to figure through the 1920s, like one in three uh, white people were yeah. members of the Klan. Like that, signed up on the list and shit. Like right. didn't get fucked. Right. So <laughs> this is this is the, this, uh, this, so this is all the background. So I end up writing this story, uh, set in Norwood. Um, and then, uh, and then I hand it to the lady who, who, told, who gave me all the research. She loved the story. She gives it to her daughter. La- daughter loves the story. Then she hands it to the elder in uh, Norwood. And then it's like, yeah, I would like to meet with him. <laughs> so then I, I meet with my elder. And, uh, and I'm sitting across from her. And she goes, it's not that I have any qualms about the quality of the writing. And as she says that, my friend hands me this picture. And it's a picture of Langston Hughes handing her an award for her writing. And I'm just like, yeah. oh. So she, she flexed on him real hard. <laughs> just casual. <laughs> casual. Because the, the other great thing about Norwood, like I said, it was founded just after mm-hmm. the Civil War. Many of the elders are still alive. So when I say elder, I mean she's 93. Yeah. Um, and the, a lot of the elders in the community are still there. They're uh, between, uh, I believe, 85 and 103 or something are all yeah. the elders Somewhere still around. around. like 10 families or so? Right, exactly. And so, uh, 
so she her basic point was, I don't want the first story about Norwood to be a scary story. She called it your prose. That's what it was. She told him, I have no qualms with your prose. That, that was the quote. <laughs> Must you keep reminding me of this? <laughs> um, so I said, um, I'm going to write a middle grade, a historical middle grade novel that takes place in Norwood. Um, and, and would that be better? And she goes, yes. And I said, I will write them both, but I cannot control when the publishing comes out. Um, and so then the Jordan Peele thing came out a couple months ago. And then my middle grade novel just got pushed to 2025. So, uh, so I've now, and this is, this is literally me and my friend living in terror of our elder. Uh, I've printed out a copy of my middle grade novel. She's delivering it to our, uh, to our elder. Um, and then we're burying the lead that the Jordan Peele story is already out. So uh, I'm scheduled to do a reading of the middle grade book uh, in the summer to uh, assuage my uh, elder. So we do not want the 90, then 94-year-old upset with me. Mm -hmm. So, But this is, yeah, this is the, the Jordan Peele story. That, uh, the, and the reaction to the story has been, almost universally, <laughs> where can we learn more about Norwood? Because yep. why did we not know about this? Mm -hmm. so. And it's cool, like a lot of the other elders that live in that community, they've also been the archivists for it as well. Um, so over the years and decades, really, they've collected um, a lot of like Indianapolis Recorder um, editions that would come out and they've pretty much become the foremost historians on it, so much so that the Smithsonian um, yeah, is coming to document it and catalog all the stuff they have. And they have been the best record keepers for black history in Indianapolis in a burden, like no, no funding, nobody trying to help out, they just did this on their own accord. And literally, this is Afrofuturism in action. Mm -hmm. Because what do you have? You have this critique of the present because uh, they had built this brand new jail facility oh, just outside of Norwood, and then they wanted to build the coroner center in Norwood itself. Yeah, um, and An so old school, right? They were gonna no on John Hardwick's on the, property. Oh, that's right. Yeah, um, and John Hardwick is a, a well-known artist who grew, who was born and raised in Norwood. He has his pieces in the in local museums and, and, and actually nationwide museums. But they were gonna just build the, this thing on 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 this on their land. And so you have this, this going on in the present, but how does it get combated? It gets combated by uh, local individuals, local elders organizing uh, to, to combat. And also my friend strategically dropping information into the newspapers <laughs> to let everybody know, hey, this is Norwood, this is what's always been here, and this is what is under threat right now. But you have these elders who is literally rooted back, rooted in the past, and their records go all the way back to the Civil War. They own all their property outright, and so that's how the properties managed to stay in, in everybody's hands is because they have basically created their own community land trust, which is the path, which is literally the roadmap of what we're doing, Capra, because it's already been done by the elders in this space. It's a, yet another roadmap. So you have this critique of the present rooted in the, uh, rooted in the past that's always projected to hey. What are we leaving for the next generation? Yeah, taking action now to disrupt that narrative from happening later is like the most Afrofuturist thing to do right now at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just curious about um, your thoughts on how Afrofuturism exists in opposition to how frequently um, supposedly utopian science fiction dips into being Eugenicist, um, mm. and You're going to want to come to the panel tomorrow, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, how your thoughts on Star Trek's most famous eugenicist character also being a person of color. 
Oh, you, yeah, 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 that's a good question. So, so the question is around uh, how does Afrofuturism land in opposition to the tendency of utopian societies to show up in science fiction and in Star Trek, and also the uh, characterization of the most famous eugenicist in Star Trek being a person of color. Did I say that right? Um, I was saying, how do you think Afrofuturism exists in opposition to how often supposedly utopian societies dip into being very eugenicist because part of their portrayal of utopia is everybody being the same and no more disabilities, no more mm -hmm. um, racism, and no more anything because everything is the same. All the same, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, how I, I, I understand where they're coming from, but it, it's very misguided. And I wonder just how you feel about Afrofuturism um, in, opposition, in opposition to that. And separate question was how do you feel about Star Trek's most famous eugenicist also being a person of color. You can go first. Um, so I, uh, we, we uh, doing a panel tomorrow talking about protopias versus utopias. Um, and it made me have to do a lot of delving into understanding the terms and everything and learning, like going through history, which was also fun. Um, and I've definitely much arrived at the point where you cannot have a utopia without eugenics. They are all based in that. So I, automate, I just think they're, they're just evil things that we package really nicely um, as a goal. Um, and I think Afrofuturism definitely works towards the protopia model more so. Um, so it's just a utopia that knows it, knows it has flaws and it works to better them. Think um, like solar punk, a lot of that is operating from the protopian um, model as the base for it. So I think in order for Afrofuturism to exist and for it to uh, be fruitful, it has to act in opposition to utopias. Um, we originally catered that conversation around Wakanda, so it was very much self-critiquing, um, if anything, in its origin. Um, yeah, and I would think even with a model like that, um, just because it has our face, like we can also be criti criticize something that we love too. Um, so even when we were talking about like Wakanda and we see it under that model, there's often eugenics going to be practiced there, and we have to be open to admitting that we can also be on the wrong side of it, as Star Trek shown. Um, people can go off the deep end. I don't think black people are a monolith by any means. And in order to see the full picture, we do have to see that other side of it that's a little bit dark and murky and we don't want to admit to, um, which is why I really appreciate protopian models. Um, you know, definitely going to be some Section 31 shit going on that's going to be real skeevy, and you have to under, like have to wonder, you know, where do we each draw the line and continue to question our own selves with it. Um, and I don't think um, somebody did that enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> who? Doctor Practice Eugenics. What's the name again of the doctor? Um, the character uh, that you're talking about. Who? Oh, uh, Khan. Yeah, Khan. 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 I couldn't no, could remember his whole, full, his whole name. I'm just like. Literally, I'm just sitting here going, oh, that's all I'm doing in my head right now. So You're just screaming that in your well, head? Just, no, because, <laughs> all right, never mind. Uh, yeah. No, no, because I, I mean, I even look at like my own Afrofuture series, for example, and and and, uh, and, and, and as part of the history of, because it basically takes place uh, like 100 or so years in the future, but at, at some point in, in, the, in their past, they have to wrestle with that very question. Um, because it's like, oh, wait, we, well, we're just attenuating DNA and da 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 da. It's like, and they end up causing basically, there's a, another community gets built within their community based off of that before they realize, all right, yeah, this is not the route we want to go down. This is not the way we want to go down. And 
Um, there is something to, in fact, they start just redefining what it means to be in community, fr frankly. So um, th even the language has to change because of that. So like the whole idea of like handicap, like uh -uh. Um, mental illness, uh -uh. Um, they, they refer to everybody as shamanistic, you know, with just different ways of perceiving the world. And we need all the shamans in order to see problems, right? Because they have different ways of looking at things. So we need their input on how, how to solve problems. We need them as part of community. We need their voices, um, as it were. And on no time they, and, but they go, all right, so when do we treat, quote unquote, treat? Like only if it becomes a detriment to themselves or others. Otherwise, you know, here's, here's where we are. And it's about how do we adapt to each other's humanity um, as it is. So yeah, it's it definitely something that gets wrestled with. Um, it's something I'm still exploring. I'm about to write book three, and I'm still got to wrap up all this stuff that I've been like, ooh, I'm exploring this, I'm exploring this, and I go, oh, I got to tie this all together. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's, at its core, you, we, it's one of those things. I also, I also uh, I was a scientist for 20 years, and there's very much a scientist impulse of like, we do stuff just because. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, oh man, what would it look like to, to do DNA this way? I don't know. And we'll ignore the fact that we've had a bunch of dinosaur movies that told us how this ends, <laughs> but we'll do this anyway. Um, Keep fucking around to find right, it now. exactly. So it's not like we don't know what, you know, messing around with people's DNA. It's not like we don't know how the story ends, but yet I know for a fact we're in labs right now going, all right, but we'll just do this. This, I'm sure this will be okay. And so it's a natural impulse for, for cultures and societies to do that. But at some point you need the people who question and push back and go, look, cannot and what does it look like to do that self-reflection what does it look like to do that self-critique um and then wrestle it out in community so but con i don't i also love con so i have no opinions on con other than i really love con i feel like you just said a whole lot somehow i know i know but you know <laughs> i'm complex <laughs> Did that answer your question? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Um, so I dabble in writing and I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, but you mentioned that a lot of science fiction and a lot of writing doesn't represent a diverse future. And yet there's no way I could possibly write from a black culture perspective because obviously I'm not to have a black culture background. So oh, that hasn't stopped anybody before. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's my question. How do I be honest about trying to represent a diverse future without creating the uncanny valley or being misappropriating a culture? Like, how do you balance that for some, obviously, you guys are doing a perfectly good job, you don't need me. <laughs> if I were to write something, how would I do it in a way that was appropriate. Find space within your own creative process to uh, make room for others. And as you're going through it in your writing, it even get other people's feedback on it, see where the cracks are, see where like, oh, I thought you would do things like this. Oh shit, you were doing it for this reason the entire time. And just those disconnects that you didn't realize were there. So um, I mean, I think that's probably the most effective, at least, at least I think it would be. Yeah. I don't know, because I've never had to be in your shoes with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, is uh, and, and I, I separate this out from like the we need diverse books movement and our own voices movement. So I'll, I'll put those to the, I'll, we'll put a pin in them over here for now. That's a whole different conversation. Um, 
the conversation we're going to have is the oh no I want I want people writing diverse characters I want people writing diverse futures um, I don't want people appropriating uh, cultures uh, it, it, you know misappropriating cultures as you put it but I so want, where does that line get drawn so it's about so when I I'm always encouraging people to like all right where is your truth in the story for one thing and that's always my starting place where is your truth in this story um, and then process wise um, how have you gone about uh, creating these worlds. How have you gone about creating these characters? How have you gone about creating these cultures? And there are resources available to you and to help you in this journey. So there's a, a writing the other is a is a big website. It's, it started off as a book um, with, with a lot of resources in it, but it's, it's uh, now it's a website and they do uh, seminars uh, and, they'll, and they'll do specific seminars, uh, even like body types. I, I, I know they just did one uh, not too long ago on, on body types, and you're just like, because you know, again, we just hadn't thought about, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to creating a diverse future, not everybody's going to look the same physically. So how do you write these different body types in ways that don't shame, for example? Um, and so they have a lot of seminars like that, a lot of seminars on language, a lot of seminars on, on religion, so that you can see where is that line, how do I do that, um, just in creating the world. And then, as Corey said, you know, then you do, I mean, I know some people react poorly to sensitivity readers or what have you, but uh, sensitivity readers are a real thing. Um, I've been employed as a sensitivity reader before um, for the video game Watch Dogs 2, for example, which is a, has a black lead character in it. And it was one of my buddies was leading the writer's room, and then he came to me awfully late in the process. <laughs> He's like, hey, can we hire you to go over this script. I'm like, say the words, say the words. And he was like, to make sure we got the black guy right. And I'm like, there we go. Um, and then I charged them double because they brought me in so late yep. in the process. It's like, yeah, I could have saved you a lot of time if you just put, had me in the writer's room to begin with, but you want to come at this way. All right. And then sure enough, I'm mean, as well-intentioned as it was, there were a couple of spots. I've been reading it going, have you ever met a black person before? Because... Hmm, this scene does not play out the way you think it does. <laughs> um, and so, but I was able to, you know, do that sort of work for him. So, and, but that's literally all, all you're doing. You're basically paying cultural consultants. That's what sensitivity readers are. They are cultural consultants. And they are there literally to save your behind. Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been other times I've read books, and, and I won't share the story now, but there was a, a friend of mine who wrote a book, and she was very well intended, and we were just like, yeah, this is like one step short of a hate crime. I don't think you want to do this. And she kept trying to thread the needle, and it was just like, no, this, this is painful. You've... I get it, if, especially if your target audience, for her, her target demographic was, was uh, uh, older white women. So, if, uh, yeah, they're not going to be the problem. It's if any black person at all reads this, <laughs> you have a problem. And it was just a fundamental problem of just not understanding the nuance of what she was trying to write about. Yeah. Um, and nuance, it's there's everything. a lot that can happen in that space of nuance. Mm -hmm. And so and that's the stuff that you, you that, those are the minefields you, you're trying to avoid. And so, yes, yeah, so I very much appreciate the question. I very much appreciate the sentiment is that here are the resources. So, yeah, go forth and create diverse futures. So where do you see the, the work of Kepra and the work of Afrofuturism going? It, do you think it's mm. in an evolving state? Do you think it's going to stay fairly stable? What do you think the future of Afrofuturism is going to be? 
Um, I think at least the space that we're navigating a lot of it um, is based in the arts, uh, you know, because kind of arts are going to dictate where we go <laughs> anyway. Um, so it's a lot of still envisioning and adapting to new technology and everything that comes into play, learning how to utilize that. Um, and then going from there, and then it'll kind of manifest, be it in like, the climate justice arena that Kepra operates in, um, understanding our ideas of what housing looks like, and then using those ideas to combat the housing crisis that very much exists. So I think a lot of it's still between the two roles that you have the people that kind of looking forward and seeing everything, and then the people that are also acting now to make sure it keeps guiding in that direction. It's such an interesting uh, combination of very practical, like I'm going to put my hands in this dirt and make food, and also I'm going to make art and change the way the world looks at the universe. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating combination. Yeah, I cheated on this question. I just wrote a whole book series about it. <laughs> So, uh, so my cheating or is that doing extra? It's another, <laughs> yeah, it's I, another flex. I, right. another flex. <laughs> so, so my 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 uh, <laughs> so my my book series. So book uh, it's the Astro Black is the trilogy, and book one was Sweep of Stars, and uh, book two is going to be Breath of Oblivion. And the whole premise of it actually is I'm just reimagining the work of Kepra into the future. So, what does Kepra look like as an intergalactic uh, community at this point? Um, and so that's. Part of, part of what it is. Um, it's just imagining, hey, and it just started because I was just like, what if we win? Well, what are we working towards? You know, uh, if, we, if, we got to, if we got to build a culture on our terms, what, what could that look like? Um, and so that basically I spent like a year and a half essentially just dreaming alongside my neighbors of like, hey, what could education look like uh, in, in, if we, if, uh, we're trying to build out of the shadow of oppression, what, or outside of the shadow of oppression, what could education look like? Um, what could uh, policing look like? What could an, a, a new economic system look like? And, and, so we, and so we did all that sort of world building together, and then that's how the, the books, uh, that, that literally became the world building for this series. Uh, and it literally started with, I, I'm just gonna dream alongside my neighbors to see what, what comes next. And so that, that was a big part of it. Um, so yeah, so I mean. And even the way yeah. you launched that book was very <laughs> unique and, and uh, fantastic. Yeah, so. so the decent artists were there. Right, yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, so the uh, Sweep of Stars is published by Tor Publishing. And so Tor was just like, uh, Tor, who is also John Scalzi's uh, publisher. Um, and so Tor was just like, hey, um, can you do a book launch party? And I'm like, sure. I, you know, I, I have some friends, Cafe Creative, you know, that they'll help me. Um, what was the question? How many models are usually at a, a at a book launch party? And they were like, "Wait, what?" And I'm like, "Never mind, we'll figure it out." And uh, then we came back and we showed them the pictures of what we did for the book launch party, and it was we basically involved all, uh, like a, easily a dozen of the local creatives here in town. Mm -hmm. um, we brought in other authors. We brought in dancers. We brought in uh, hip hop artists, musicians. R&B singers, open mic poets, digital artists, digital artists to celebrate yeah. art and culture of the city um, as the book launch of the event. And we just sent them pictures and like, no, I don't, I don't launch a book. We launch a book. 
we will we because this is how artists support one another and this is the this is the kind of future we want to build mm -hmm. is when one of us does something we all do something to support it and when they do something we all move to support them because that is the kind of world we want to see and so we sent them those pictures back so that's how we launched that's how we launched the book <laughs> so and how did they react they said we've been doing book launches wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you do it. You vision it and then the future changes. Right. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find out more about what we're doing now, including our live event coming up in November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or follow us on social media at Starbase Indie. See you on the Starbase.